Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. At 6.50 p.m., Red Max rang the doorbell of 35 to 36 Little Newport Street. The lodging of a petite French brunette, unnervingly similar to the other three victims, who was known as French Suzette. He didn't wear a disguise or bring a weapon, as Max's power was his stranglehold on Soho. A place so in fear, he could kill in plain sight and disappear into a busy city street as no one dared to speak his name. Unlocked by the prostitute's terrified maid, as with Fifi, Marie and Leia, the street door led up a tight stair as his heavy boots thudded up to this soon-to-be crime scene of another killing. By the time the police would arrive, the room would be cleaned, the evidence erased, the witnesses silenced, and the killer unseen. Many have speculated that the Soho Strangler wasn't the work of a sadistic serial killer or a series of copycat killings, but a white slaver sending a message to his pimps, girls and ponces. And now, just a few streets south of the murders of Fifi, Marie and Leia, a rival crime boss was dead. Roger Marcel Vernon was born on the 4th of January 1901 in Fontenay-sur-Bois, a pleasant suburb on the outskirts of Paris. His father was a postal official, his mother was a housewife, and coming from a good hard-working family, although he was educated and cultured, Roger wanted more. Nicknamed Petit Georges, Owing to his small stature, Roger was a thin, slightly built man 
barely five foot high in heels, who wore very expensive, exquisitely tailored suits to hide the fact that they were child-sized. And although, with dark slicked down hair, a flawless face, and often wearing a natty little bow tie, many mistook him for a little boy dressed in his Sunday best. When in truth, he was an angel-faced killer. Like a little Highland Terrier, Roger could be calm, loyal, and intensely smart. But burdened by a short fuse, sharp teeth, and a savage bite, very few rats ever escaped a tussle with Roger unscathed. We know little about his descent into crime, as he used the cover of running cafes to hide the truth from the authorities and his parents. In July 1920, 19-year-old Roger was bound over for theft. In April 1922, he served two years for larceny, and later for larceny with force. At Villain Assizes in November 1924, he was sentenced to seven years hard labor and ten years banishment to the infamous Devil's Island. Harsher than any sentence and harder than any prison, Devil's Island was one of the most brutal penal colonies in the world. Opened in 1852, Devil's Island was an uninhabited and isolated strip of land, 10 miles off the French Guiana coast of South America. Surrounded on all sides by swirling seas, owing to the heat, the disease, and the brutality of the waters, it was nicknamed the Dry Guillotine. As 40% of the prisoners didn't survive their first year, and 75% would die before their sentence was even complete. To endure such brutality requires strength and patience. And although Roger was half the weight and size of most prisoners, he lasted three years in near solitary confinement before he finally broke. Few prisoners have ever escaped Devil's Island, but one was Roger Vernon. On the 15th of November 1927, Having built in secret and silence a makeshift raft, stockpiled supplies, and concocted an almost suicidal plan, eight convicts, over cover of night, navigated the black stormy seas, escaping ten miles west to Venezuela. As one of the most daring prison breaks ever, it caused a national embarrassment for the French. And although they unleashed a worldwide manhunt to capture him, dead or alive, Roger was never caught. From Venezuela, where he met his wife to be, he fled to New York, and in the Broadway cafe, 
he brought a French-Canadian passport under the alias of Charles Edward Lacroix. A native of Montreal, born five years before himself, and blessed with dual nationality, this gave him access to Canada, France and Britain. It is unknown how and when Roger Vernon, alias Charles Lacroix, became a white slaver. But seeing himself, not as a small-time pimp or a ponce, but as the boss, he was unafraid to get his hands dirty. And to send a clear message to any rivals that he was not to be messed with. On Monday the 30th of June, 1930, Henri Bouclier, a 60-year-old Belgian known as Old Martigues, the slang name for the French coastal town of Marseille, left his wealthy apartment on Dorches Street West in downtown Montreal and the epicenter of the Red Light District. Described as a vice czar, Henri was a drug dealer and an international white slaver who wore sharp suits and always dripped in gold jewellery. Henri was the boss of Montreal's criminal underworld. But losing his grip, new gangs had muscled in. Police struggled to find any witnesses and the statements they made were vague. But it was said that Henri was picked up by a black car of unknown make by two men of unseen description and driven away. Missing for three days, on the afternoon of the 2nd of July, in a remote disused industrial site called Lavelle Solar Lac, an 11-year-old boy found his bloated, bullet-riddled body just a few yards from a barely-used road. Fully dressed except for his hat, his pockets were emptied, his ID was burned, and his jewellery was stolen, so that now everyone could see that this once great man had nothing, because he was nothing. With no bloodstains at the scene, tire marks told the detectives that he had been murdered elsewhere, driven to this spot, dragged off the road, and dumped within view. Being easy to find, but hard to identify, his killers knew that speculation would grow, and once his death was reported, that the message would be clear. Examined by the police surgeon, Henri was shot while standing in a close range, with the first bullet smashing his gold teeth into pieces and embedding into the back of his neck, and the second breaking his ribs and skewering his right lung as he drowned in great gasps of breath of his own blood.
police interrogated their prime suspects. Roger Vernon and Rafa, a fellow escapee from Devil's Island, for eight hours about the murder of Montreal's Vicar. But with no evidence, they were released. With Henri dead, Roger assumed control of parts of his criminal empire. And even today, the murder of Henri Bouclier remains unsolved. Across the early 1930s, Roger moved between America, Spain, Belgium, London and Paris, establishing brothels and trafficking women into sex work, with his wife set up as a front by running an honest café. The white slave trade was big business. It was said that a new attractive young girl, preferably a virgin, could trade hands for 500 pounds. That's 31,000 pounds today. And having added her travel fees, her rent, her clothes, and a sham marriage, each girl would be imprisoned by a pimp's debt. And living in a code of silence, with nothing written as paper leaves a trail, each of these contracts would be etched in fear, bruises, and blood. By the mid-1930s, Scotland Yard still struggled to smash this Soho vice ring and to prove who the boss of each rival syndicate really was. But often, this person was so invisible, it was almost as if he didn't exist. As a legal citizen with no criminal record in Britain, on the 21st of October 1931, at Hoban Registry Office, using the alias of Charles Edward Lacroix, Roger Vernon married Esther Ode, a former French prostitute. And using the cover that he was a car dealer, with modest lodgings on Grafton Street, he blended in. Seen as a small businessman living a seemingly modest life, Roger kept a low profile from the law as he ruled great swathes of the West End sex trade with an iron fist. Roughing up the meat when they stepped out of line, attacking any pimps who skimmed off the top, and stamping on any rival who muscled in. In 1933, Roger moved his mistress, a petite French prostitute, with rosebud lips and a brunette bob, known as French Suzette, into a two-floor lodging at 35 to 36 Little Newport Street, just south of Soho. Where Red Max the Strangler would be murdered. Fear pervades every element of the white slave trade. From prostitutes to pimps, kingpins to ponces. And even those ordinary people 
who perform simple tasks to aid their daily life. Marcel Gabriel Aubin, made to French Rosette, would state, Roger had lent a man called Emile Allard, 25 pounds, to furnish a prostitute's flat and had not paid it back. He did not like this man. He was a big bully who was known to threaten women and to make those he disliked pay by violent means. Two days prior, Redmax paid Suzanne a visit at the flat while Roger was away on business in France. Scaring Suzanne and mocking Roger, what was said by Max was unrecorded, but Roger was said to be fuming. On Wednesday the 22nd of January, one day before, a letter was sent to Red Max. It read, Will you call at the flat tomorrow, between 6.30pm and 7, as I have a letter to hand to you personally? It was signed, Suzanne. Posted that day and received the next morning, the trap was set. But what was the motive? There were two witnesses to the murder and disposal of Red Max, but both were in fear for their lives. 45-year-old Marcel Aubin had been Suzanne's maid for just eight months. In her first statement to the police, she would deny everything, stating, Roger wasn't there. There was no fight. I broke the window fixing a light, and Madame only left as her mother was sick. Promise protection. This terrified woman later admitted, I did not tell you the truth, because I am frightened that someone might injure me. The second witness was Pierre Alexander, a driver and garage owner of 21 Sutton Street in Soho, who was also an associate of Roger Vernon, a known ponce who the police suspected was a flat farmer with links to white slavery, and who was also the landlord of 35 to 36 Little Newport Street, where the murder took place. In his first statement, he too denied it all, stating, I don't know Suzanne. I have seen her with a small Frenchman, but I don't know his name. I have not seen Red Max in months, and I was not at the flat that night. He would later admit, I did not tell the truth as I was afraid. I held it through fear, and because he said that I had to. But that's the power of fear. It can make witnesses silent, and even murders seem like suicides. Thursday the 23rd of January 1936 was an ordinary day by all accounts. When the maid arrived, Suzanne and Roger were still in bed, and then she made them both breakfast. 
On the sideboard, in the top floor sitting room, Marcel saw a small pistol, a .25 Colt automatic, along with a tin of 18 bullets. At 6.50pm, having rang the doorbell, Marcel nervously showed Max up the stairs. At Roger's request, Suzanne hid in the second floor bedroom, later joined by Marcel. And in the third floor sitting room, instead of meeting Suzanne as he thought, Red Max met Roger Vernon, who was still seething. What words were exchanged between the two bitter rifles would go with both of them to their graves. Whether a debt was repaid or insults were spat is unknown as with the radio at a volume that was too loud to be pleasant. It could be said that this was premeditation, as was the loaded pistol in Roger's pocket. As a tiny man with a childlike frame, although quick-tempered and dangerous, Roger was no match for Red Max. A thuggish brute who could strangle this tiny man with one hand. And Roger knew that. Marcel recalled, Soon after he went up, I heard quarrelling. Footsteps back and forth. And while high words were being spoken, then... I heard some shots. There were several. I heard a scuffle, and then Roger shouted, Marcel, as both women rushed up the stairs to the aid of this tiny man. Max had me by the throat, Roger would claim. He was trying to strangle me. Only with no bruises to his neck, all he had was a cut to his lip, as this lump of a man stumbled about, bleeding profusely. Five shots were fired in total. The first penetrated both sides of his right hand as he tried to defend his face. The second and third ripped into his stomach, with both bullets buried in his right leg and back. A fourth fired from the side, burst through his hip and his right kidney, and shot from behind as he stumbled. A fifth skewered his right shoulder and breaking three ribs as he slowly drowned in his own blood. Stubbornly still standing and trying to flee, when Marcel and Suzanne arrived, Red Max would growl Oh, mademoiselle, he has shot me. As the cruel white slaver whined about his own impending demise. (laughs) 
pushing the lumbering lump back into the room. When he got near the window, Marcel would say. With his forearm, he smashed two panes of glass. And although she would state, Suzanne and I pulled him away from the window, several witnesses did refuse to speak or told to the police. But many more, who had no links to drugs, crime or white slavery, openly spoke of the shots they heard and the falling glass. Their statements would prove pivotal. But oddly, not a single person had called the police. In the bathroom, on the second floor, as blood and stomach bile pulled about his crumpled legs, Max pleaded, take me to the hospital as this terrifying monster who had subjected thousands of girls to an unspeakable horror of being repeatedly raped by drunken men begged I'm going to die give me some water but as he struggled to breathe gasping air air Roger simply barked at him shut up with bullet wounds to his stomach and kidney. The pain would have been agonizing as it took him half an hour to die. As slowly, this once feared crime boss bled dry, slumped at the base of a toilet. Red Max the Strangler had been murdered. But with enough power and money, even a big man could be made to vanish. Pierre, it's Roger. Come round at once. Bring a car. Backing up his black Chrysler 66, a four-seater saloon to the street door at 11.20pm, Pierre saw the body and went white, both in shock and fear. With the street still trickling with curious faces, but no police, they waited until 3.30am when the club had shut and the street lamps had gone out, plunging the whole area into darkness. Throughout the night, Suzanne and I washed away the bloodstains, Marcel would later confess. They washed the walls, scrubbed the carpets, and erased any trace of Max from every surface. When Roger came in, he said, There's a spot there and there. He wasn't happy until every spot of blood had gone. Into the fire. Everything Max had on him when he died was burnt. His letters, his ID, his passport, his tie, his collar, and even his trilby hat. His money was taken, 
and his jewellery was stripped, so that when found, everyone would see that this once great man had nothing, because he was nothing. The window was repaired, the curtains were burnt, the pistol was dumped, and the spent cartridges were slung down a drain. Even a passing policeman would be none the wiser. At 4am, with a foggy frost having descended onto this cobblestone street, amidst the gloom, a 16-stone lump wrapped in a brown blanket was dragged down the stairs and bundled into the back of Pierre's car. Ordered by Roger to go to the country, this makeshift hearse headed 25 miles north to St Albans. Sneaking down unlit lanes through an impenetrable fog, Pierre later said, After wandering a while, we went down a little turning and Roger said, here is a good place. Pulling up quietly and dragging the body by its feet across the hard frosty grass. So his once fine suit was ragged and torn like a penniless pauper. Like rubbish, he was dumped between a hedge on a barely used road in an isolated spot. It wasn't hidden, but that was the point. Roger wanted the body to be found, bereft of life and stripped of wealth. As the speculation grew, once Red Mac's death was reported, the message would be clear. Just as it was with Henri Bouclier. By the morning, as a passerby found a blooded, bullet riddled body, Roger and Suzanne boarded a boat train to Paris. Reassured that the flat was clean, the evidence was destroyed, and the witnesses silenced. The murder of Red Max could easily have gone unsolved, as many other murders had. But as much as a kingpin has the power to make a mere minion too terrified to talk and erase them if they do, there is nothing more intimidating than a police detective who can arrest you, deport you and convict you. With the body identified later that day as Maya Cassell, alias Red Max. Although the press made spurious claims over the dead man's identity based on hearsay, the police investigated the crime using the most logical methods known. An autopsy confirmed his fingerprints. With no criminal record, they liaised with the French police. In his list of known associates was Roger Vernon, who was missing as was his mistress, a convicted prostitute known as French Suzette, who lived at 35-36 Little Newport Street. 
When questioned, local witnesses spoke of shouting, glass smashing and gunshots. Inside, although the flat was spotless, fingerprints were found, as well as a few tiny blood spots. A witness at the King's Head pub next door had seen and heard Red Max struggling to breathe in the bathroom. And speaking to the neighbours, they were able to trace two terrified witnesses who demanded protection to speak. On Saturday the 1st of February, just nine days later, at a hotel in Port Saint-Denis in Paris, the Surete would charge Charles Lacroix and Marguerite Ferrero, alias Roger Vernon and Suzanne Bertrand, with willful murder. With both suspects French, the inquest began on Monday the 3rd of February at Paris Assizes in France. The evidence against Roger Vernon was solid. Only one key witness, who had seen everything, was missing. As may have happened with French Fifi and the white slavers it was said she helped to convict. Before the trial, a petite French brunette and a prostitute's maid called Marcel Aubin was found dead. Investigated thoroughly, an autopsy would confirm it wasn't a murder or a suicide, but that this healthy, 45-year-old woman had succumbed to a mysterious illness. In court, the tiny crime boss in his natty little bow tie poo-pooed evidence, dismissed lawyers, and tried to tie up the court in knots by denying that he was Roger Vernon and that the murder of a rival had taken place. Turning against his mistress and hanging her out to dry, as he shouted, liar, every time she condemned him, Roger spat, I swear that I do not know Max Cassell and that I had nothing to do with his death. Roger Vernon was a big-time criminal and a feared gangster. And although tough and devious, calm and controlling, and a man who wrought fear upon a city, the prosecution knew how to get to him. Not evidence, not a new witness, but his beloved 74-year-old father, who scolded his son like this little boy truly was, shouting, You unhappy boy! You grind our name into the mud! You must tell the truth! And with that, Roger Vernon, the international drug dealer and infamous white slaver, who ruled large swathes of Soho sex trade, fell to his knees and sobbed. On the 29th of April 1937, at Seine Assizes in Paris, Suzanne Bertrand was acquitted. 
Pierre Alexander gave his damning evidence and then fled the country fearing his own life and found guilty of willful murder. 36-year-old Roger Marcel Vernon was sentenced to 10 years hard labor and banished for 20 years. It could be said that Roger Vernon was a likely suspect to be the Soho Strangler. But he was never suspected, as before the brutal murders of Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia, he was already in prison. With three women dead, the killing stopped, the panic over, and the press having ceased writing silly stories about a serial strangler in Soho, slaying similar-looking women with links to the sex trade. With their focus on the looming war in Europe, the excitement had died down, and the case was forgotten. Part 9 of 10 of The Soho Strangler continues next week. Extra, extra, read all about it. Jack the Ripper kills fifth in Miller's court. With the inquest into Mary Jane Kelly's death, concluding she was murdered by persons unknown, this marked the end of Jack the Ripper's reign of terror. As oddly, the press's interest had begun to wane. With the Second World War looming like an ominous fog of death, the murders of three dead women in a seedy part of Soho, French Fifi, Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia seemed insignificant. Just months before, the tabloids had slathered with talk of fear, menace and mystery as a foreign monster with an ape-like gait slayed a slew of unworthy women in a fevered panic amidst the West End sex trade. Whereas once... The Soho Strangler was an international sensation. But now his crimes and his victims weren't worth the ink. As the public's only source of fact, the press had misled and lied to keep the myth about a serial strangler alive. Having even distorted witness testimony and derailed an investigation in the name of circulation. The murders were unnervingly similar, but this could easily have been just a coincidence. The press would state his victims were petite French brunettes. Only one was English, and given that a woman's average height in the 1930s was five foot one, and most prostitutes trafficked into London were French, the law of averages would suggest that they looked similar. As with where the women were murdered, most lodgings for sex workers in Soho's red light district consisted of rooms above a shop 
accessed by a single street door and subdivided into small bedsets. As for his method of attack, knocking a girl semi-unconscious with a fist to the face and strangling her with a hand or a stocking, it's not an uncommon assault as it happened to Fifi just one week before. With no robbery, no sexual assault and no fingerprints, there was no conspiracy or cover-up as being in and out too quick to leave any hint of his identity. As the police had said right from the start, the most likely suspect was a man who frequented brothels and had a history of violence against prostitutes. In short, they may have argued over money. He hit her. He panicked and then strangled her to stop her screaming. And that's the problem. Serial killers are front-page news. Whereas a sad, cowardly little man, getting angry at being overcharged for sex, is not. Like the others, she was known by many names. Elsie McMahon, Charlotte Tolkien, Fifi, French Marie, French Paulette, and to some simply as the French woman. And like Roger Vernon's mistress, she was also known as French Suzette. Only her life would begin far from the streets of Paris. Lottie Asterley, as her birth certificate states, was born on the 15th of December 1889 at Croydon Workhouse Infirmary in South London. Known as Elsie Charlotte Astley, she was the illegitimate child of Nora Astley, an English domestic servant. And although unlisted, her father was possibly an Irishman called McMahon. Although described as a petite French brunette, with a billowy cloud of reddish-brown hair. She was a little taller, a little older, and although all of the women were slightly curvy, she was larger and bustier than the others. As a toddler, Marie, as she liked to be known, was placed into care and raised at our day-of-the-day convent at Boulogne-sur-Mer in France, which is why being a fluent speaker with a Cote de Pal accent and only able to speak in broken English, those who knew her often mistook her as French. No longer a ward of the state, in 1905 she returned to England, living in the West End with her mother. And that year, aged just 16, Elsie Charlotte Astley married Victor Token at St Pancras Registry Office in a very brief marriage of just six months before she fled to France with a man known only as Mr Richard. Said to be in newspapers, she followed him from England to France and on to Guadeloupe for six years. How they lived, what they did and for what reason will never be known until the outbreak of the Third World War when she returned to London. 
and being an unskilled woman, unable to divorce. She would furnish her meager wage as a chambermaid, as well as her addictions with casual prostitution. Sex work filled a financial hole, but it was a hole in her heart which left the biggest gap. Investigated, but with proven alibis for the day of her murder, Marie had two men who she loved. Jean-Emile Ormont was a French bigamist who she called Papa and lived with on Chitty Street. And although it's unknown if he was her pimp, she aided his deportation and she hadn't seen him since. Second was Novice Norton, a married draper's shop owner, educated in Belgium and fluent in French, who was a man who clearly loved her. Letters in her flat spoke of his undying love. But having grown tired of her binge drinking, their relationship had begun to drift. One week before her murder, he politely suggested they split. He didn't see her after this date, and when the police informed him of her death, he genuinely looked heartbroken. In her 48 years alive, Marie's life was often loveless and hard. But she never gave up. Often homeless, she didn't sleep rough. As casual work could fund her a night in a refuge. Or through prostitution, she would get men to buy her a drink, a meal and a place to sleep. In return for sex and a little money. She didn't have a pimper or a ponce. And as a part-time prostitute, French Marie was widely liked, but known by few. She hadn't been threatened. She had no known connections to the other victims. And she sometimes suffered assaults by drunken punters, which went unreported. Struggling to hold down a job owing to her drinking. Having been admitted to a temperance hospital on the Hampstead Road in Euston for a week. By Christmas 1936, she was employed as a cleaner at the Ross Institute for Tropical Diseases on Keppel Street. And supplemented by sex work, she moved into a small one-room lodging on the second floor at 306 Euston Road where she lived, sold sex, and just a few months later, she would be strangled to death. With the myth about a monster and the story of the Soho Strangler as dead and buried as his victims, although most articles about this murdered woman was relegated once again, to a small paragraph hidden within. The press's reporting was 
almost accurate. Any mistakes weren't malicious, just lazy. And their factual coverage of this case was reflected in the truthful testimony of the subsequent witnesses. Monday the 16th of August 1937 was Marie's last day alive. And it was as ordinary as any other. Dressed in a dark green jumper, a dark green frock, and a little black hat, but no scarf. At 11.30am, Marie entered the Golden Compass pub at 341 Euston Road, a short walk from her flat. Hello, Marie. What are you having? Served two pints of Reed Stout by Patrick Jordan, the barman who had known this regular but heavy drinker for the last few months. He said she sat quietly in the corner with an unseen person and left by 12pm. At noon, alone, she entered the Adam and Eve pub at 284 Euston Road, a place she visited daily. across a public bar and a saloon. It was sparsely filled with just ten customers and a barman, many of whom knew her, liked her, and would chat with her that day. Later to be joined by the man who would murder her. Unlike the post-midnight sighting on Old Compton Street of the man who may have murdered Dutch Leia, The bar was brightly lit, relatively quiet, and there were few obstructions for the witnesses. Barman Joseph Clancy served Marie a large glass of Australian wine, and she engaged in conversations in French and broken English with several customers. At 1.05pm, Reginald Marshall, George Pratt and Dominic Napolitan Three shop fitters on a lunch break recalled seeing Marie happily chatting with two of her friends. May Kenny, a housewife, and Charles Damey, an electrician. May was drunk and slurring, but with a higher tolerance for booze, Marie held her own. Their mood was said to be normal. Throughout the next two to three hours, several customers entered the bar to buy off-sales, with the bottles of takeaway beer being stamped and dated with the pub's details, as was the legal requirement. At 2pm, Marie spoke in broken English to Gertrude Calthorpe, a local waitress. Being a few drinks in, Marie was swaying and slurring. But never being unpleasant or aggressive, she was described as Mary. At 2.20pm, while Marie chatted with May, who needed holding up, her killer entered the public bar. He didn't skulk, 
He didn't hide. And he wasn't in disguise. He just went to the bar and ordered a pint. Being by himself, Frederick Thomas Dobson, an unemployed miner living in a men's hostel in Camden Town, struck up a polite conversation with the man, and the two strangers enjoyed each other's company. Later questioned about the man he had spoken to for roughly 40 minutes, in daylight and at a distance of barely two feet, Frederick described him as mid-thirties, five foot four, medium built, full face, sallow complexion, fair to brown hair parted to the side, clean shaven, thick jaw, dressed in a dark brown suit with a distinctive stripe on his soft collar, tie and waistcoat. He also noted he spoke with a Newcastle accent. Oddly, he didn't look foreign, he didn't sound menacing, and he didn't walk with an ape-like gait. This monster, who was just hours away from strangling Marie, looked as normal as any other man. Many of the witnesses gave similar descriptions of this man, with the ages ranging from early 20s to mid-40s and physically described as short and thin, with a pasty round face, flushed in the cheeks, and wearing a brown suit with no hat. In truth, he was 24 years old, 5 foot 3 inches high, 10 stone in weight, with a pale flushed face and brushed back hair. But he was spot on about the Newcastle accent. To be honest, It didn't take much detective work to determine that Marie's killer was from that city in northern England. As over a pint, the man openly chatted about his life, both past and present. Frederick would state, he said that he worked as a miner in Wales and Newcastle for roughly six years. During this conversation, Frederick saw Marie look across the bar in their direction and smile at the man. It seems odd that a man so hellbent on murdering petite French brunettes would walk into a public bar and openly discuss the facts about his life. But he did. But then again, Being so ordinary, if a murder hadn't have happened, would anyone have remembered him? At 2.40pm, as Marie chatted to Gertrude, she waved at the man and he smiled back. She wasn't afraid of him and she told no one anything about him. But to her pal, she laughingly remarked, I am getting off, which is prostitute slang for having sex with a punter, suggesting he was not a stranger. At 2.50pm, that same man chatted to George Bakewell, 
and although he didn't disclose his name, he spoke about being born in Newcastle, about how his last boxing match with a man named Maguire had ruined him, that until Monday morning he had worked at the Central Hotel in Marleybone, but was fired for upsetting a milk churn, and with him being unemployed and currently homeless, he showed me his work cards, and the two men agreed to meet up later so George could help him out. George waited at the pub from 5.30pm till 6pm as agreed. Only the man failed to turn up. Last time, gentlemen, please. At 3pm, with the pub due to close, as was the law, Marie ordered two pint bottles of Guinness as off-sales with each bottle stamped and dated with the pub's details and placed in a brown paper bag. Outside, several witnesses, including George Bakewell, the match seller, Frederick Dobson, the ex-miner, and Phyllis Kingham, a friend of Marie's, overheard this exchange between Marie and her killer as well as it being witnessed by two passers-by, Thomas Leith, a fishmonger, and Henry Boone, a newspaper boy. He said, Are you going to take me home? She said, Have you got any money? To which he put his hand in his right trouser pocket and pulled out what looked, to anyone less drunk than Marie, to be a fistful of coins. But as some of those who saw this would state, it was no more than half a crown. As they walked away, heading down Euston Road and on to Hampstead Road, Marie shouted to Phyllis, I'll see you tonight. And she laughed as the man tried to kiss her, with a cigarette still sticking out of his mouth. At 3.20pm, Marie and the man turned onto Seedon Street, a bustling market where you could buy fruit and vegetables, clothes and shoes, meats, fish, and takeaway foods like peace pudding and saveloys. When questioned, although many struggled to recall such an ordinary sight, Numerous witnesses gave identical statements and descriptions to the police. There was no criminal kingpin threatening the witnesses to remain silent, or locals being too afraid to speak. These were just ordinary people, seeing a woman they knew to be a prostitute, walking up hunter along her regular route back to her flat. It was so ordinary and normal that by the time the moment had passed they had already forgotten it. At 3.25pm Gertrude Calthorpe Marie's friend from the pub saw her heading west being held up by the man 
and appeared to be browsing several of the stalls on her way to Bath Row. At 3.30pm, Sadie Gibber, a fruiter's assistant, saw Marie. She'd clearly been drinking, she would state. The man was trying to coax her. As staggering along, she held the man's right hand. And with the neighbouring stall being closed that day, she was annoyed as she couldn't get any meat for her cat. About the same time, Reuben Packcroft, a bookseller who often sold Marie copies of True Detective stories, stated she was not steady on her feet. The man he described as a jolly chap held her by the arm. He was amused and laughing. In court, Reuben would testify. I have known her to be, in the company of this man, two or three times prior. It makes sense, as with her killer potentially being a person she liked and trusted, she would willingly let him into her home, maybe make him a cup of tea, and possibly prepare him a meal. If all he stole was the money he paid her, it would be impossible to prove whether a robbery had taken place. Having assaulted her, there may not have been any sex or rape, as his mind may have been on his escape. And with no hint of fear, she may have been strangled before her mouth could utter a single scream. Being angry and drunk, he may have fled before he left any fingerprints. And as an ordinary bloke, he could vanish, not through his own devious cunning, but because no one had noticed him. Just like Dutch Leia, at 3.40pm, Marie and her killer were seen entering her home at 306 Euston Road, where later she would be found strangled. Henry Radley, a fishmonger from next door, was outside of this address pumping up his bike tyre when they both passed him at the entry to Bath Row. He would state, The woman was in front. She opened the door with a key. The man, as he was on the steps, turned to me and smiled as they both entered the building. But unlike Dutch Lair, two tenants saw them inside the building. Mrs. Kathleen Uller on the first floor passed them on the stairs. And living one floor above Marie, as she entered her bins, Eva Schladever saw her being assisted up the stairs by a man, and then together they entered her second floor lodging. At roughly 4pm, Marie put on the wireless radio, as was typical, and Eva stated, I heard them singing and clapping to the music. It remained on for the rest of the afternoon, and as far as I know, 
Marie did not leave. At some point during the music, French Marie was murdered by a serial strangler. As before, no one saw or heard the last sounds of her demise. But why would they, when everyone's focus was on living their own lives? Thuds are mistaken. Cries drift on a wind. Screams get drowned out by horn honks. And even an ordinary murderer could vanish unseen, being just a face in a bustling crowd. At 6pm, a time verified by Mary Connell, who heard the whistle at the scent factory blow, said she saw thick plumes of dark smoke pour from a second floor window. Alerting Gulam Mustafa, an Indian waiter on the ground floor, and Eva Shladova on the third, they spotted smoke seeping into the hallway from the slightly ajar door of Marie's room. Mustafa knocked, got no reply, so they entered. As a small bed sitting room, barely big enough for a small bed, a table, an armchair, a set of drawers and a washstand. A small fire was likely smouldering, as an oil lamp had probably smashed in the sink igniting a few rags, maybe a towel or a flannel, as well as a curtain which encircled the washstand for privacy. Gullum stamped out the burning cloths. Eva opened a window for air. And as the smoke cleared, on the bed they saw Marie. Fully clothed, her feet on the floor, her legs apart, and a cloth covering her face. As a drunk woman, prone to mishaps and afternoon naps, they thought she was sleeping, and with the fire out, they let her rest. Switching off the music to give her peace, they closed the door. unaware that she would never wake. It would be another murder, mistaken for an accident, and in one case, a suicide. But it was nothing clever. It wasn't premeditated, and there was no criminal mastermind pulling the strings of conspiracy. As with everything in life, we see what we want to see. If we believe this is the work of a cunning serial strangler, stalking Soho streets in search of similar-looking sex workers, who planned each crime scene down to the tiniest of details, 
then that is what we will see. But if, like the police, we see a drunken punter, whose anger sparked a moment of madness, who hastily erased even the briefest traces of himself, before he fled unseen, then that is what we will see. The press will write what they write, and the reader will choose to believe what they will believe. But if you write it, it becomes fact. If you repeat it, it becomes proof. And if it appears in enough books, read by enough people who are willing to accept it as the truth, it becomes irrefutable as cast-iron evidence. An hour later, long after her killer had vanished, amidst the thick city smog, Gertrude Calthorpe had her daughter deliver a letter to Marie. With her still seemingly sleeping, as soundly as when they had left her, Mustafa and Eva accompanied the girl, and on the silent bed, they tried to rouse this motionless lady. Mustafa shook her arm, but she did not wake. Eva called her name, but she did not stir. Having pulled the cloth from her face, the threesome didn't recoil in shock, as her face wasn't a twisted mess of pain. If anything, it looked peaceful. With no ligature around her neck, and her face an old shade. Suspecting that this chronic alcoholic had died in her sleep, they called the police. The first constable arrived at 7.25pm. An ambulance followed, and with her certified as dead, Dr. Alexander Baldy, the police surgeon, followed, and as was protocol in a suspicious death, the CID came too. Within the hour, the police would confirm that French Marie had been murdered. With no witnesses, no obvious robbery, no signs of a struggle, and no ransacking of the room, it looked unnervingly similar to the three other murders. But what made this one stand out was a crucial clue, as not only had 20 people seen his face, with some even hearing his possible life history, but this time he had left his fingerprints. Since Fifi's murder, the police had dismissed any notion of a serial killer, stating in a report dated the 9th of September 1937, the newspaper suggested that this murder, Marie's, was connected with the cases of strangulation of prostitutes in Soho in 1935 and 36. We have convinced them they are wrong. 
By this point, the press had lost interest and fixated on the belief that the most likely suspect would be a punter with a history of violence, especially strangulation, against prostitutes who had links to Soho and the West End and who, most likely, matched the suspect last seen with Dutch Leia. The police went in search of a suspect. Not a crime boss, a monster, a bohemian or a Jew, but an ordinary man. This tried and trusted technique had failed three times before, with each inquest concluding that these women were murdered by persons unknown. Only this time, it was different. This time they had his face. This time they had his history. This time they had his fingerprints. And exactly as they had stated, right at the very start, they would arrest a man who had recently been convicted for strangling two sex workers. The police's most promising suspect in the murder of French Marie was a young, brown-haired serial strangler who visited prostitutes in Soho. The final part of the Soho Strangler concludes next week. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The investigation was led by Chief Inspector Drew of the CID, who had overseen the murders of French Fifi, Marie Cotton, Dutch Leia and Red Max, and would confirm this is a case of murder. As before, there was no struggle, robbery or assault. 
with a timeline of events as clear as the day itself, the evidence as irrefutable as dust, and an embarrassment of eyewitnesses who had seen and spoken to her killer face to face from just a few inches away. There was no mystery as to who had murdered her. A composite description was compiled by the witnesses. He was aged 24 to 30, 5 foot 3 to 5 foot 4, thin to medium build, a roundish pasty face, a ruddy complexion, blue eyes, brown brushback hair, a dark brownish scruffy suit, and no hat. That same man was seen with the victim at the Adam and Eve pub at Seaton Place Market, and then at 4pm. Both were seen by the tenants of the building, entering her second floor flat at 306 Euston Road. Dr. Alexander Burney confirmed by in situ examination that her time of death was 4pm to 5pm. Eva and Kaufman Schladver, living one floor above, saw that same man from their window walk into Bath Row and into Euston Road at roughly 5.30pm. And no one was seen to enter or exit her room until at 6pm, as established by the scent factory whistle, when they extinguished the fire and found Marie. With the police report stating, there is no doubt that the murderer was a chance pickup in a public house. The evidence was irrefutable. Her killer was a man she trusted, having held his hand on the walk back, accepted a kiss in public, and let him into her flat for sex when it could have occurred in any of the nearby back alleys. Inside, they sang and clapped to the music, as heard by Eva. They drank four bottles of stout, two of reeds and two of Guinness, which were marked with that day's date and the pub's address. And then at the table, they both enjoyed a light meal, with the man opening the salmon tin with a can opener. Sex followed, as she willingly removed her hat, bra and knickers, but not her dress. She lay on the bed, her back on the sheets, her head on the pillow, and with no signs of a struggle, no cuts, no internal bruising, and no fingernails broken, consensual vaginal sex is believed to have taken place. Only this time, something would change. With a fist to the face, a lack of struggle suggested she'd been knocked out. With frothy mucus in her airway and bruising about her neck, she was manually strangled at first, but then with a ligature 
later taken by the killer. It is unknown if it was knotted, or if he held it tight until her life had ebbed away. The police would state, We failed to find anything in the nature of a ligature. With Marie not wearing any stockings, either he had taken it as a souvenir, kept it as it belonged to him, or it was destroyed in a short ferocious fire, which blackened the sink, burnt the curtain, and turned the rags within to cinders. With no money in her purse, it's possible that this trusted punter didn't need to pay for the sex first. But with the witnesses stating, he had no more than half a crown in his hand. What was his plan? His motive was a mystery. But given enough time, his identity would not. Although unknown to pub locals and West End coppers, with his fingerprints on the can opener, the bottles, the salmon tin and her handbag, the police would manually search every fingerprint of every criminal with a history of assaulting women or prostitutes who matched that man's description. It was an almost impossible task, made simpler as he had left a few clues. Openly chatting in the pub to two strangers, Frederick Dobson and George Bakewell, Marie's killer had shared details about his life. In coordination with the Durham police, they searched for a short, thinly built, mid-twenties man with a round pasty face who was born or raised in Newcastle. But as he mentioned nowhere specific, their list was too long. The same was said of every coal mine they checked in both Wales and the Northeast. A more specific lead was that he was once a boxer. His last fight was with a man named Maguire, who had ruined him. But having interviewed over a thousand boxers, working with the British Boxing Board, the Amateur Boxing Association, and having posted an article in Boxing Magazine, no one could recall Maguire or his opponent. Having said he was unemployed, the police checked the details of every man who had recently signed on at the labour exchange. Having said he was homeless, they searched every lodging house, hotel and casual ward in London and Newcastle. And having said that he'd been sacked that morning from the Central Hotel in Marleybone for upsetting a milk churn, they questioned the hotel staff, the agency and the Ministry of Work, but came up with no one. The police placed informants in public areas. Witnesses compared photographs of possible suspects at the records office. And as they had done with Fifi, Marie and Leia, 
they requested that every police division in the country compile a list of men with convictions for assaulting women who matched that description. Every suspect was questioned and investigated. But with solid alibis, they were all released. They had evidence, fingerprints and eyewitnesses. And yet, even after weeks of dogged investigation, with every avenue of suspicion examined and any possible suspect scrutinised, the case had begun to stall. The police report states, The inquiry has been aggravating. For whilst we have witnesses together with fingerprints to support a conviction, we have no prisoner. We have many witnesses capable of identifying him, but up to the moment, he is unknown. However, no effort is being spared to bring this to a successful termination, and DCI Drew and his officers are in no way disheartened. I am hoping for a little good fortune to come their way, which has been conspicuously absent so far. Once again, a strangler had vanished into thin air. Only he wasn't a criminal mastermind or a crazed sadistic genius. He was just an ordinary man living in a population of 47 million people in an era where the best resource the police had was a card index. For him, it wasn't difficult to disappear when the police didn't know who he was. His name was Norman Stevenson. Born on the 10th of March, 1913. 300 miles north of London, in the northeast city of Newcastle, Norman was always an undersized boy, often bullied for being small, and whose weedy frame, ruddy cheeks and pale face contrasted starkly with his dark brushback hair. It always made him look sickly and weak. But maybe that's why he lied about being a miner, a boxer, and why he regularly visited prostitutes as deep down, he was just a little boy who wanted to be seen as a man. Little is known about his upbringing, just a small walk from Castle Lees's Moor and Fenham Barracks. But being jolly and chatty to all, he blended in because he didn't stick out. Educated at St. Andrew's Council School. Age 14, he left being described as educated, but not smart. And being too small for heavy labour. His first job in 1927 was as an errand boy for a picture framer. 
But all that changed when a little mistake left him scarred for life. On the 14th of September 1927, Norman's favourite football team, Newcastle FC, were playing against Derby County at St James's Park. Being too poor to buy a ticket, this little whippersnapper had tried to sneak in by shimmying up the six-foot-high railings when he slipped. With two iron spikes impaled through his stomach, all he could do was hang there, in pain, as blood ran from his midriff down to his feet and his face. Hospitalised for three weeks, he would be plagued with bouts of sickness and unemployment for life. After his accident, his work record became sporadic. In 1928, he was a confectioner's van boy, but quit in 1930 owing to stomach pains. In early 1931, he was off sick, but worked for nine months erecting a concrete garage in Newcastle. And in April 1932, he worked at Park Royal Training in West London. But owing to sickness, he returned to Newcastle, where he engaged in casual work and petty crime to fund his habitual drinking and sex with prostitutes. Norman Stevenson had ten convictions, mostly for minor offences. On the 27th of February 1931 and the 8th of February 1932 in Gateshead, he was charged with acting suspiciously. 11th of January 1933, he did six months in prison for stealing cigarettes. 22nd of January 1934 at Newcastle, he was fined for stealing two tins of petrol. And on the 14th of May 1934, he did three months hard labour for stealing women's clothes. Upon his release, in February 1935, he moved to London. And as may have been misheard, or possibly it was a little white lie to sound tough, for six months he was a boiler house labourer at the Central Hotel on the Marleybone Road. Only he wasn't sacked for upsetting a milk churn, but left owing to ill health. On the 9th of October 1935, at Marleybone Police Court, he was sentenced to two months hard labour for stealing from a gas meter. On the 16th of June 1936, back in Newcastle, he served nine months for shop breaking and again for stealing from a gas meter. And on the 31st of May 1937, in Wilsdon, West London, he would serve another three months hard labour at Wandsworth Prison for stealing 12 shillings again from a gas meter. As a weak and sickly boy, little Norman Stevenson didn't fit the profile of a murderer. He was a part-time labourer who suffered with stomach pains 
and sometimes stole clothes, stamps, and cigarettes. Since the murder of French Fifi, the police had sought a man resembling his description, who had a history of violence against women or prostitutes. Only Norman had no such convictions. In fact, his only violent offence, before he was charged with murder, was the assault of a policeman while drunk. Which begs the question: After almost two years of hunting for this very unlikely suspect, with three murders having gone unsolved, and no other suspects for a fourth, as they had done with Stanley King and James Allen Hall, had a baffled police force simply bagged themselves a very convenient scapegoat, and was Norman Stevenson, an innocent man? Having vanished, it would take seventeen months for the police to find Norman Stevenson. By which time, memories had faded, recollections were hazy, dates had shifted, and faces were lost. His alibi for the day of the murder was not to deny knowing Marie, but to deny that he was even there. On Monday, the sixteenth of August, nineteen thirty-seven, at seven forty-five a.m., Norman Stevenson was released from Wandsworth Prison in South London, having served three months' hard labour for stealing twelve shillings from a gas meter. Dressed in a shabby brown suit, but no hat, with a few coins in his pocket, he boarded the tram to Westminster. At 9 a.m., he said he ate breakfast at the Salvation Army Hostel on Great Peter Street. Only there was no record of his visit. At 12 p.m., as Marie entered the Adam and Eve pub, he said he paid a visit to a friend near Waterloo Bridge. Only this man wasn't in. Later, he said he ate lunch in a hostel on Middlesex Street. But again. His details were not recorded there, or at any of the neighbouring hostels. At roughly 1 p.m., he said he caught a train from Waterloo to Merston, two hours and 19 miles south of Marie's flat. At 2:30 p.m., around the time that it is said that he entered the pub, his sister said. She gave him five shillings, but I can't recall the date. And with so long having already passed, although the police had his fingerprints on a Guinness bottle as brought by the victim, marked with the pub's details, dated the day of her death, which was bagged and carried to the flat, and was later found open and drank beside her bed where her body was found. They couldn't disprove that Norman wasn't elsewhere, just as they couldn't prove, without a shadow of a doubt, 
that he had strangled Marie. On the 29th of October, 1937, even with an overwhelming wealth of evidence and only one possible suspect in Marie's murder, being unaware that Norman Stevenson even existed, the inquest was concluded by the coroner, who would state, there is no doubt at all that the police have made all possible inquiries. It is clearly a case of murder and there is only one verdict which fits these facts. That night, a foul mood enveloped the detectives, as they knew they'd done everything right. When the public pinned the blame on society's outsiders, and when a feverish press had bastardized the facts to concoct silly stories about a monster they had dubbed the Soho Strangler, the police had stayed steadfast in their belief that each victim was murdered by a man with a history of violence against women. But having investigated every possible suspect, they had failed to find him. Only they weren't wrong. Marie's murderer had a history of strangling sex workers. It was just that, until now, he had never been caught. Sixteen months after the inquest, 300 miles north in Durham, on the evening of Friday the 27th of January 1939, 56-year-old Catherine Moore Chamberlain left the home she shared with her husband at Douglas Terrace, walking past St James's Park and heading to Castle Lees's Moor. It is uncertain why she was there. Some say she was meeting a pal whereas others suggest that being the wife of a poorly paid labourer, she was earning a few extra shillings by selling sex to the soldiers stationed at the nearby Fenham barracks. With the snow falling thick and the night bitterly cold, Catherine wore a long woolen scarf to keep the chill from her neck and a set of rubber wellies as her feet churned the grass into a brown slushy mud. At 10.10pm, Catherine was seen chatting with a small man at the main gates of Lees's Park by Mabel Jackson. She described the man as about 5 foot 3, aged about 25, dark hair, ruddy complexion, round face, dressed in a dirty dark suit with a collar and a tie, but no hat. Later arrested, Norman Stevenson would make a confession 
with chilling similarities. He would state, I realized there was two pounds missing from my waistcoat pocket. A crime he would blame on Catherine, having been dipped in the past, by which a prostitute will either overcharge a punter or will discreetly steal their money. Although we have no evidence to prove his assertion of theft. Feeling aggrieved, a letter of one blow on the chin, he would state. But only being a little guy, although she went down against the wall on her knees. As she started to struggle, he rained down repeated blows on her face, as this terrified woman began to scream for her life. It was then that he strangled her to death. Norman would confess, I grabbed her by the throat, but being too weak to choke the life out of her, I then got hold of her scarf. Not being the kind of man who planned to murder a prostitute, as she screamed, I tied a knot in it. A granny knot, which he knew how to tie in haste, being a labourer. I had no intention of killing her, he would state. I did it to frighten her and to get my money back. Which was almost certainly a lie. As in the same way the French Fifi hid her money in her left stocking, Catherine hid hers in her wellies, which he removed. At 10.15pm, a passing couple heard several screams by the ARP trench. But by the time they had raced to the barracks wall, Catherine was dead and her killer had fled. With almost every piece of evidence eviscerated by the winter sludge, the Durham police were at a loss as to who this man was. Placing a description of the man in the papers, the press reported the facts in a factual and an unsensational way. But with only one prostitute dead, this little story would be quickly forgotten. As the Met Police had done, Durham Police had requested that all divisions across the country compile a list of men matching their description who had a history of assaulting prostitutes, especially strangulation. It was too eerie to be a coincidence, as the man last seen with French Marie was from Newcastle. With the press accurately reporting this suspect's description in all the local papers, Norman Stevenson had become spooked. Mid-afternoon, on Friday the 3rd of February 1939, just one week after Catherine's murder, 
Norman had tried to strangle another prostitute while drunk on Newgate Street in the heart of Newcastle city centre. In a local pub, having met Annie Cunningham Thompson, a local sex worker who he knew and liked, they headed into an alley for sex. Only nothing happened as he was too drunk. Moments later, he put his hands around my neck and tried to strangle me, Annie would state. Which may have been his real motivation, as with this little boy desperate to be seen as a man, were these assaults because he couldn't get an erection? Fighting him off, Norman fled as two men came to Annie's aid. But as he ran into Westmoreland Street, being racked with anxiety, Catherine's killer gave himself up. Walking up to PC John Patterson, Norman said, I want to give myself up for murdering Mrs. Chamberlain. Since the murder, people have said queer things about my appearance and it has got on my nerves. Detained at Arthur's Hill Police Station, he was charged with assault and with murder. On Thursday the 2nd and Friday the 3rd of March 1939, at Durham Assizes, Norman Stevenson was tried for the murder of Catherine Maud Chamberlain. Pleading not guilty, his defence was, I thought she had only fainted. I didn't mean to kill her. And claiming self-defence for a knife which was never found. I thought she had a razor. I was in fear for my life. But with no prior history of violence, the charge was reduced to manslaughter, as the court knew they hadn't the evidence to prove any premeditation. Having retired for 45 minutes, a jury of eight men and four women found him guilty of manslaughter. and allegedly flicking a little grin as he walked from the dock. He was sentenced to 10 years in Parkhurst Prison. Throughout the trial, Chief Inspector Drew had absorbed every detail about Norman Stevenson. But if he was so sure that this man had murdered French Marie, why did he convict a man called Robert Dixon? With Norman sticking to his shaky alibi, he would state, I know nothing about it. I don't know the Adam and Eve pub. 
and I don't know the woman. On the 2nd of May 1939, Robert Dixon was tried at the Old Bailey. As with so much coverage in the press of the murder of Catherine Chamberlain, both the prosecution and the defence felt it prudent to try Norman under an alias. Pleading not guilty to murdering Lottie Astley, alias French Marie, he would state, We were both drunk. She told me to leave and she pushed me. I pushed her back and she fell. I grabbed her scarf and I think it must have tightened. Only no one could recall her wearing a scarf as it was summer. Having retired for one and a half hours, during which time the jury had sought rulings by the judge on various points of law, they returned with a verdict of not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. With Norman Stevenson, alias Robert Dixon, sentenced to 16 years for the manslaughter of Lottie Astley and 10 years for the manslaughter of Catherine Moore Chamberlain, escaping a death sentence, he should have served at least 26 years in prison but with both convictions set to run concurrently, he served just half. Released from Dartmoor Prison in 1955, Norman Stevenson died in 1969, professing his innocence. Almost 140 years after his killing spree, it is unknown if Jack the Ripper was ever caught. No one knows his name, or even if he even existed. As with so many theories and conspiracies concocted by a feverish press and a public only interested in what's sensational, the facts are lost in a quagmire of lies and suspicion. More than 85 years after the Soho Strangler killings, the same could be said. As was he a man, a myth, or a monster? Since the start, the police would state, some of the newspapers have suggested that these cases of strangulation of prostitutes in 1995 and 96 are connected. We have convinced them that they are wrong. But did they think that? Or with only circumstantial evidence of a Soho serial killer? Was it quicker and legally safer to conclude one murderer solved rather than four they could never prove were connected? We know he strangled two women to death 
Catherine Moore Chamberlain and Lottie Asterley, as well as assaulting Annie Cunningham Thompson. But with no history of violence against prostitutes, he was never suspected of any earlier murders, as his first conviction for strangulation wasn't until 1939, three years after the murder of French Fifi. Although we have no sightings of the man who murdered French Fifi or Marie Cotton, the suspect last seen with Dutch Leia is almost identical to Norman Stevenson. Fresh complexion, clean shaven, brown brushback hair, a long black coat and no hat. As a small, unassuming boy, who looked sickly and weak, was he often mistaken for harmless? Being so friendly, he would chat to strangers in a pub. The kind of punter a prostitute would wave at across a bar and who she would invite back to her flat for a meal and sex because she trusted him. He may not have had prior convictions for violence or sexual assault, but he regularly visited prostitutes. His earliest crimes were for acting suspiciously, and he was charged twice for stealing women's clothing. Was that entirely innocent, or does it hint at something deviant? Prior to their deaths, three of the victims were assaulted by punters, who had claimed to have been cheated out of money. To the police, Norman would admit, I have been dipped before by prostitutes in London. He also knew Soho and the West End Red Light Districts. He could tie a variety of knots at speed. And with no money found at any of the crime scenes, he knew where at least two of the prostitutes had hid their earnings. In neither the press nor the police reports is Norman ever named as a suspect in any of the Soho murders. But by comparing his work history and his prison record, there are a series of startling similarities. Sentenced to two months at Pentonville Prison, Norman was released on the 4th of November 1935, the day that Josephine Martin, alias French Fifi, was murdered. Dressed in a shabby brown suit, with no home, no job, and no money, it's likely that prison life had left him desperate for sex. On the 16th of April and the 9th of May 1936, the days when Marie Cotton and Dutch Lair were murdered, being unemployed and keeping on friends' floors, we know that he was in the West End. But by June 1936, being convicted of shop-breaking, for unknown reasons, he had fled back to Newcastle, where he felt safe. And having been sentenced to three months' hard labour, 
released from Wandsworth Prison on the morning of the 16th of August 1937. With no money, no job and no lodging. He got drunk in a pub. And just hours later, he murdered a prostitute known as French Marie over possibly a few shillings. It could really be as simple as that. There was no myth, no monster, and no conspiracy. He wasn't a crime boss, a sadistic gay, or even a sinister Jew. As often, the most obvious answer is usually the right one. That these women were murdered by a recently released convict who was broke and had a deadly desire for sex. So was Norman Stevenson Soho's serial strangler? Or maybe the Soho strangler was just a myth. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. 
Visit ebay.com for terms.